RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Pro Athlete Supplementation. Check them out at pas-nutrition.co.uk for all your supplementation needs. And don't forget that subscribers to the Rugby Renegade program get a 40% discount on retail prices. Yes, welcome back to the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name's Jamie Bain and today I interview John Noonan, performance coach who's got a history in league union and football. Um, you have ton, tons of experiences um, and he really shares that with us today. So give it a listen and let us know what you think. Hi John, welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. Great to have you on. Why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about your background, how you got into strength and conditioning and some of the teams and athletes you've worked with. Sure, yeah. Hi, uh, thanks for having us on. It's um, massively appreciate uh, taking out some time to have a little chat too. So um, yeah, my, my background, I guess, for one word, it would be very varied. Um, first full-time role I had came after an undergrad uh, and that was in 2004 yeah 2004 um, a couple of voluntary roles but then uh, I think 2007 was probably the main first one that was in football so because the first part of my career was was in football championship football premiership football um, and then from there I, I was in a phenomenal environment which was Chelsea uh, did about 14, 15 months there, and, and it was quite a, it was a, a really exciting but quite a challenging point as well in my career because, you know, I'd I'd kind of done the UKSC at that point, um, had a really strong insight into what what SNC looked like at the time, and in football as we as we all know, it, it it perhaps doesn't look like you first imagine when you walk in as a, as an SNC coach. I think now you know conventional practice has moved on a great deal, but certainly back then it, it was more water bottles warm-ups, piss-pots, heart monitors, which was fine. Um, but it, it didn't overly excite me at the time, despite the environment I was in. And don't get me wrong, I worked with some great people. But uh, by doing so, I guess it, it provided me with a challenge to think, well, you know, you could you could stay in this space and, and have a fantastic career. But what is it you really want from the role? And for me, it was to get my hands dirty a little bit more as, as a strength coach, perhaps along with the conditioning and, and the other aspects of being a coach. And, and that's where I, I, I made the decision to leave and go into rugby and spent uh, four great years at, at Leeds Carnegie Rugby Club, now Yorkshire Carnegie, two years in the academy and then two years uh, heading up the first team with, with a really special group of people of whom I'm still in touch with now. And I know you're you know, good contacts and friends with Rob Parkinson and there's some some fantastic people that come from that. And uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we're a really good group of mates. So I think after that, well, during that tenure, I was introduced to uh, randomly, a board across athlete, snowboard cross athlete, a female GB athlete, and as a bit of a favour, started doing some work with her, uh, which turned into eventually a full-time role, which was uh, hybrided with some alpine skiing um, and touch of ski cross, and that was with the British Ski Snowboard Association. So it was a uh, definitely uh, something on my on my agenda to try and work with an Olympic team. So that was exciting and fun, and and that actually just transitioned because um, uh, the creation of a new freestyle. GB Park and Pipe team. So uh, we had a brand new program, brand new, brand new team, and group of people came together, working alongside UK Sport um, to design and deliver a world-class plan for the Sochi 2014 Winter Olympic Games, and that was fantastic. And actually, was was a, a hybrid role again with a PhD at the time, which sadly 
um, haven't finished, and I know there's I've got a few colleagues out there who have tried and and perhaps haven't got it haven't got it over the line at some stage. But um, it then turned into an end fill, um, and the idea of it was that we you know, there's a real void of evidence, quality evidence in the area of, of strength and conditioning for for some really exciting extreme sport athletes. So the main aim initially was to to do a taxonomy and do an assessment of what are the critical demands of the sport. Uh, and that was a really good challenge and, and, and trying to take some, you know, more laboratory, laboratory rigorous assessments in, in a really, you know, challenging, um, you know, untrodden path of, of how do you apply that in the real world. Snow, they're really free-spirited people. They're not from a background which is, you know, maybe a little bit more formal as a, as a training environment or the relationships you have with athletes that, you know, recognise what what conventional training is with strength work and things like that so it was a really good challenge and a, and a really exciting time um that turned into an mfil uh, which i finally submitted about five years later um after about two to three years in that role um an opportunity to go into huddersfield giants rugby league presented itself so um stepped into that and some some really good challenges actually and didn't quite go the direction that, that i intended and actually i left uh, at the end of the first season there um but nonetheless it was it was it was a good ride and then from there went into Everton Football Club uh, headed up the S&C program in the academy and um yeah I was there for about 3 years until until at this point and I work for uh well I work for myself actually so in February of this year I took the plunge um something I thought about for a couple of years just to try and try and catch a bit more ownership of my own time um, projects that I was engaging in, and, and really and really test myself in the space of self-employment with teams and athletes, and alongside some private stuff too. So I've been doing that since February of this year. So yeah, learning some hard lessons, but it's it's an exciting transition nonetheless. Um, and uh, trying to juggle, been a been a dad to two girls and a wife as well. So uh, trying to win on all fronts, which is uh, is exciting. <laughs> that's cool and yeah we'll, we'll touch more about your on your self-employed work um later but um just if you wouldn't mind going into a bit more detail about um your work in you know ski and snowboard and um what you've kind of taken from that and what you can apply you know to your work nowadays but also just i, I always think it's interesting speaking to different sports because you know often i'm in the sort of rugby and team sports bubble and don't really um mingle with other people you know what what you've or what are the key things in that sport that you can take into to other environments yeah that's, that's a really good question and um something i was challenged on a lot by by my peer group of you know what what are you doing that for how does the skill set that you've captured really worked in or certainly i you know i couldn't lean on anyone to find out what were some of the common practices and look i think as as a sport um, I, try, I tried not to get overwrought by, by the fact that I didn't really know what I was doing, and I, and I made no um, no excuses that I had no idea about the sport. Uh, I'd skied a little bit earlier on in school, but I, I couldn't brag to be of any quality, or you know, I, I couldn't do anything that I might relate in any way to to a background in. So for me, it was it was getting to understand the people so, as as a bloke. Could I relate as a person, first and foremost? I think that was the biggest challenge because they are, you know, free-spirited, adrenaline, off-the-wall junkies. You know, they, they are lovely people, but um, they're, they're, like I said before, that they're not from conventional practice or conventional training and competition. Largely, 
the, the program that they operate in is their program. It's very athlete-led, athlete-centered, which was, again, unique for me working in an individual sport. Uh, I assume because they're all part of the same team that, that they're, you know, an aspect of training and competition was about progressing each other. And actually, you know, to an extent, some of it is through through some peer-to-peer experiences and, and competition that it generates. But, you know, they're, they're not competing for a jersey with each other. It's it's can they maximise their own performances and that again that was quite unique coming from only team sport practice so um, you know that that definitely challenged my approach to each individual and actually even though they're they're very different as a makeup and a person um, they still had quite a a large diversity in their needs and requirements as as far as what they're into as people some were really engaged in strength work and that was really easy as a transition others weren't and and, and, and thus you had to work really, really hard on getting by in high compliance, high adherence to, to training and injury prevention work that you knew would help them, but you know, they, they had never had a relationship with in the past. Um, I think my, my injury actually was, was um, I met a guy called Jamie Nichols who was a male slope-style rider. He, he did really well and he en- ended up getting a sick um, best male result at slope-style Winter Olympics in 2014. Um, really exciting talent. Um, but, but you know, I'd, I'd kind of been primed that he wasn't into strength work, but yet they identified from looking at him as an athlete and he had a bit of an injury risk at the time that, that he really needed it. And so, you know, they, they don't set that up for you. You've got to go in and really convince these people that, that they need to try and take notice or, or, you know, where possible, drip feed some of the, you know, more, um, uh, more valued aspects of training and preparation to, been better on the, on the snow every day so um, it, it was truly operating an athlete centred model and, and from that it was it was trying not to be too oppressive and directive with, with the way I coached but rather putting it in their terms and I mean very open ended and being prepared to t- sort of go in directions that um, I probably didn't go in before um, but I think for me you know with, with all the environments that I've been in uh, I would say that the first approach I've gone in with is, is just be a really good listener and You've got two ears and, and one mouth for a reason. So I think for me to have an effect on an environment or a group of people that, that can't relate to me at all, um, you know, people only buy into those who they know, like and trust. And trust was definitely high on my agenda as, as far as building effective relationships and then and then for them to understand that I'm there to help rather than direct and, and be an authoritative coach, which, you know, I've made that mistake early in my career being very dictator if you like as coaches in your title so you need you need to act that way as a coach and, and for me it really isn't about that it's a people business and it's it's all about people relationships so yeah relationships and trust were, were definitely high on that and um, yeah they, they, they're some really lovely people but but it kept me I think very grounded and humbled about exactly what my value was because I was just an S&C coach they hadn't had one before they couldn't put a value on that so you know, I was um, I was prepared to go at their pace. Yeah. Oh, no, that's that's some great advice in there, uh, John. Um, yeah, like especially the the listening and and the fact that kind of straight away you've gone into the the fact it's the the relationship with the coach with the athletes um, rather than just you know it's the you know they you know they need strong legs for you know whatever it might be. It's it's all about 
the buy-in and I think in especially in rugby where right. the, the strength and conditioning side of things that there's a big buy-in already from the players you know you know a few stragglers you know ignore those but um yeah the majority of players buy into it quite easily so for you to have that experience to go to a sport where it's not it's not or it's completely brand new to them in your example um that must have been a massive a massive thing for you to, to develop and then you know bring that into when you go back to rugby as well um, so let's, let's touch on, um, yeah. as you said, about moving into self-employment as you did February this year, because um, we get a lot of S&C coaches listening to the podcast, and, and I guess there's, although the industry is growing massively, there's still not a huge amount of jobs, but there's a lot of people coming out um, you know, with uni degrees and, and, and competing for jobs, and we were kind of talking off air about it before and kind of saying that you, you kind of think, oh, yeah. there's only a few teams and a few jobs, but... Um, what's your experience moving into, you know, um, kind of commercial industry and, and doing your own work? Yeah, listen, that, you know that that's a really interesting topic for me at the moment. I mean, um, one of the initiatives that I have is a is a coach mentorship program, and, and that and that really wasn't by design. It wasn't something that when I left my full time role, I thought I'm going to set up a mentorship because it it just kind of happened, and that came to the back of a couple of coaches and friends that I knew who'd said, "Listen, would you mentor me?" But could we set this up seriously where, you know, we both dedicate time and a process to this and and then as a byproduct I kinda of created a structure and, and now there's a mentorship of eight coaches on there who you know, I work with very closely and it, the idea that it's very personal and that it's it's aligned exactly to what coaches need, be it knowledge skills or you know, if, if I can transfer some of my experience and key lessons learned so that people can fast track or add more impact to their environment. But um not to get lost with that, the one of the things I'm doing at the moment is just I'm trying, I'm trying to get a blog going and, and you know, with life getting in the way, it's, it's, it can be a challenge to be consistent. But one of the things I'm writing about at the minute is how to have impact in a crowded marketplace or a crowded environment. And I think that's key. Like you just alluded to there. There's a high supply of coaches, perhaps a lesser demand for jobs, I think certainly in the professional sector. I mean, you know, for me, it, it definitely was working in the professional sector that, that really got me going and you're You know, there's an aspect that maybe you're indoctrinated to thinking about athletes, high-end performance. You want to test your ability against elites. And, um, you know, sadly, not everyone has that opportunity. And I think probably if I started again, I might not have had the amount of or the depth of experience that I've got within pro sport because of the size of the competition now. And, and yeah, it's a factor, but I, I don't think it is a limiting factor. You know, I think it, it comes back to how you define your value. Can you market your value? Um there was a really interesting thread recently. I don't know if you saw it. It was with um, Stuart McMillan and I think a couple of other gents had, had jumped on there, like Brett Bartholomew, Eric Cressy, and some really interesting comments were made. Um, and, you know, at the moment, I think it, the media attention around jobs or, or pay for jobs, it, it's rife, you know, and we, we certainly don't mind sharing our opinion about that, do we, on Twitter, and that's fine. Um, you know, that, that's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but... You know, if you look at, for instance, the state of the industry survey that was done by the UKSCA in 2016, that clearly shows that while the majority of coaches, um, I think, think about now, are working in the professional sector, or those who at least gave feedback for the for the survey, I should say, uh, were working in the professional sector, and then it looked at what your what people's remuneration was against their level of experience, their skill sets, and, and qualities. And unsurprisingly, 
I think if you had five years experience or less, you could expect to receive a salary of, of anywhere from zero to £20,000. And yet, when a job role comes out at the moment, that might be £15,000 or fifteen to £20,000. There's uproar. And, and I think it's frustration, you know. We, we don't go to university and invest thousands. And of course, you know, university fees are increasing. And I think I was one of the last ones who fortunately paid highs of 3003 But, you know, I think it is... <laughs> It's extortionate now, and the industry has, has grown. I think you know, there's a higher amount of coaches turning to formal education. I mean, did some research. I think in 2004, when the industry was established, there was one SNC course, specific SNC higher education course, and I think that was um, Edinburgh University. That was a master's. And now, um, do the math for me. <laughs> so many years on, you know, there's there are 23 master's courses and 22 undergraduate specific SNC courses so I think there's there's a steady growth and it's been exponential you know we're definitely pumping out students that are capable they've got good skill sets and a lot of them have great experience but you know if, if you're in a crowded market how do you differentiate what your qualities or how do you get you know, what your value not be a salesman but but have you really thought about that when you get to interview you know I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it. There are umpteen CVs that come through the door that, yeah, you've got all the natural requisites that we want. Um, but what is the defining factor that means you make the shortlist or not? If you're a coach, you know, and I want five years experience, ideally, because of the, the nature of the role or the environment that you come into, I might be looking for certain skills and attributes. You might have a degree. Fantastic. You've ticked all the boxes. But you, you're not going to interview 100 people. So how do you stand out to be that top 10 or that top five? Um, and then for me, you know, it, it's three things. You, you've got to define what your value is, like really critically assess where you are and what is your point of difference and what do you have to offer that might be unique or perhaps your perception is, is different or interesting that's, that someone else doesn't have. You know, have you got case studies of your work that you can demonstrate that, that provide context to, you know, I've, I've developed uh, a strength training program at an academy and this is the impact that it's had. Fantastic, show me. Because that's the point of difference that, that will help me identify what your value is. And then, of course, you need to you need to grow your value. And I think after you've done university, and perhaps, you know, this isn't a plug, but perhaps one of the nice things that, or something that I'm trying to do with the mentorship is to provide people with a strategy and a framework that we co-create that people can then align to what they need to, 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 to jump the gate, to jump the next hurdle, if that indeed is a big obstacle. And not not everybody needs that, don't get me wrong, but there are certain people, and I was one of them at the time, that, that had the requisites, but until I got a decent mentor or called in a few peers and friends, I don't know about you, Jamie, but it can be difficult, you know, when you go to a conference and the energy is high, people are pushing for pro sport roles, everyone's getting excited about the elite presentations, and it's great, you go home, read some articles, but then what? You know, where do you take that learning or that information? You, if you're going to engage, I think, in, in, in experiences now or learning opportunities, it's got to go somewhere. It's got to it's got to provide you with some value in return, however you apply that. And, and, and I think strategically, you've, you've got to apply it in a way that, that is well thought out and considered. It can't just be you go to a conference and right, it's networking and other things, but what are you doing with that? Um, and I think after you grow your value and you know you identify where perhaps you're lacking and 
where you know the areas that you can grow to have a bigger profile or an all-around profile then it's about communicating the value like i said um and i think truly figuring out if you've defined it well enough and you've, you've shown that you've grown aspects of your value aligned with you know the direction you want to take your career in and i didn't know for a long time and still hope to an, ex- to an extent of you know where i want to go ultimately but you've got to be able to articulate and communicate that effectively and um, you know because people can tell when you get to interview if if they're a really really astute really considered person who's seriously thought about their skill set and how it aligns with an environment and that, that they can identify their skills and match it to the environment that you know I'm offering a job for for example so I'm offering there a little bit but uh, hopefully you get you get the gist no yeah yeah ton, tons of information I think I think you're right and it and often it's quite hard to kind of figure out your skill set or what you're lacking in and that's for me personally that's been a big thing where mentors have come in and been able to help kind of guide you in in the right directions um so i guess is that kind of what you're touching on as well yeah 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 i think i think so i think i don't think it you know, i'm not talking about some um some some taboo things or you know doing something that other people aren't but um sorry i've just i've just lost the light in the car and uh <laughs> <laughs> so so uh yeah i'm actually in the car in this call with you because um i've got two young girls uh, under the age of three inside and it's bedlam so this is the quietest place i could do this um but um i think so yeah if you if you if you fundamentally you, you need to identify what you enjoy and what fulfills you and, and like me at the time you know i so i gave the example before i stepped away from football and to me, it's less about the sport, but more about the quality of the environment, the quality uh, or the opportunity, should I say, to deliver things that I'm interested in or, or grow aspects of, of training and provide it in an environment that meets my ambition. Um, you know, and, and working, yeah, in international football, but anyway, that, that isn't interested in developing athletes with you know, evidence-based practice or, or practice-based evidence in mind. Yeah, tons of tons of good information there. Now, this is a question we ask all the guests on the podcast, and it's what is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to strength and conditioning? That's a hell of a question. 
<laughs> well, if, if I think back to uh, the experience I had in in, in Leeds and Huddersfield, uh, it, it was probably that players didn't um, a real general a real general one, but they probably didn't respect the power of recovery enough. So I think um, certainly in Union, you know, the lads were so hungry uh, and eager for athletic development, physical development, strength, size that they probably didn't balance training training and stress balance enough try the training recovery balance enough um so you know effectively you were uh you were diminishing any any or or, or that real rich adaptation response from training from strength training and negating that by by training again and not and not maximizing recovery between sessions or after pitch sessions um and then i think it, it takes time through education right for for guys to see and understand that they can make more progress with a minimum dose response sometimes um, if they manage the workloads effectively. But but I think for me it was it was that as an under under appreciating and under maximising recovery in in those environments. Yeah, yeah, quite definitely. General, but yeah, no, look, that's something we've heard quite a bit. Um, and I think it's players don't understand fitness fatigue and you know general adaptation syndrome or you know supercompensation they just think the more the more I do the better and they don't understand that you create that fatigue yep. you need to recover from it and you know adapt to a certain extent then train but they just try and train and train and train yeah you know you, you see it a lot with with players and and it's often you know we talk about the different personalities of players you get some players who aren't really don't really like the strength and conditioning side of it and then you get others who love it and go go the wrong way by doing too much of it and like you say not getting the recovery in and, and not getting those adaptations so it's definitely a, a, a good point um so talk about rugby specifically um it's we know the game of rugby it's such a chaotic environment how do you sort of approach preparing your athletes um for any eventuality on in the game and so they're robust from injury yeah that's um I think that's the holy grail, isn't it? Really. So, um, you know, I, I, I definitely would um, throughout throughout working rugby teams be thinking, well, number one, I, I want to reduce injury incidents or, or risk of injury first, and then and then kind of ensure ensure performance second. I mean, <laughs> for me, over time, it kind of shifts sometimes performance first because I think ultimately you're there to help teams win and be successful. But um, uh, sometimes that again, I think can can Emphasise the importance of, of getting a good handle on what what your what your peer group um, above your or, or management is really looking for. Are they looking to to redu- you know is your role there to reduce injury, not as just a, an injury SNC or injury prevention coach? You know, does your program basically reflect what is the key goal, the key focus of that environment? Um, and obviously, those two things are synonymous synonymous in many environments, but. Um, for me, I think if we're talking physically, um, I think the best proactive approach is to is to periodise where possible, but have quite a, a fluid and a lucid periodisation model. I think people refer to that what is agile periodisation these days. It, it it was to prepare players for what are the worst case scenarios on the pitch. Um, so you know, looking at some of the research from Tim Gabbert and looking at the most intense periods. Of matches in, I think it's in three to four minute windows, isn't it? And looking at what are the relative um, uh, movement demands on these players from um, tackle, reload, jackal, reload, sprint. I think it's, you have to remind me, Jamie, I've been out of the rugby a little bit, but I think more than three, three high intensity efforts within 21 seconds or something. But 
um, you know, can are, are you exposing players to that in training? I think is the first question. You know, have you reviewed what are the most intense um, scenarios, uh, worst case scenarios in, in 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 competition, and have you prepared them for it? But also, ha- have you attached some some accountability or a performance standard to that? So one of the things we did um, England, and it wasn't necessarily not England. It wasn't necessarily my idea, but at Leeds, Mike Ford from England came in at the time, and and we would stress test certain drills. Um, so just looking at pitch conditioning, we would have instances where we would pre-fatigue a uh, small side of game, for instance, and it might be uh, an overload attack type game, so a really quick ball in hand, aggressive running game. But prior to that, forwards that we might pre-fatigue with uh, repeat tackle shield hits um, or a scrum prior to that, you know, before they would do the running game. But at the same time, the backs would be doing repeat shuttles or repeat sprint efforts. Uh, and exposing them to, to, to that nature of, of their role and then going to a small side of game, really overload the, the attack and defence. And then we'd repeat back again and go back into another um, under-fatigue, can-you-complete skill and task effectively. So, you know, again, it could be hitting tackle shots with forwards or rucking, and then it could have been, again, um, uh, repeat shuttle or, or, or longer-distance sprints for the backs. And that we would we'd stress test this and put, put outcomes on the small side of games so it wasn't just a case of boys here you go there's three or four minutes do what you can it was right what do we think is suitable as a playing group at the moment what would you be happy with in terms of try scored um, or, or, or the scoreline at the end of at the end of that small side of game and so it gave the attack and it gave the defence a working objective so that it's you know it meant more than just playing a four minute game of rugby so nothing too, too technical but it put accountability and a challenge on the playing group so that their standards even under fatigue like in competition were under pressure and then of course if they didn't meet what they felt was an appropriate goal or objective at the end of it there was a consequence and largely the consequence was you know me getting my whistle out um, or the boys doing some running or, or hits again but it, it, it put a greater precedent on the quality and standard of practice and I don't know a great deal about the England rugby environment, but um, uh, I've got some some close friends and peers who've worked in that group, and, and I think that's one of the the biggest things that I think Eddie Jones possibly introduced. Uh, if I'm generalising a little bit, when he first came in, it was to stress test um, the intense nature of of gameplay of ball in hand rugby, so that execution meant something in practice, and that that people um, executed under fatigue, high skill but had really good outcomes competitively and, and thus you know, were more able to technically reproduce that in competition uh, in international rugby. So for us, it, it, it created a real standard of practising in the playing group. There was definitely a more acute awareness of, right, training means something. And rugby union boys, you know, they don't take too much to go for it, do they? But... Um, it, it definitely set a precedent that we're not just training for training sake or to get fit or to improve our handling skills. It meant something. It had to have tangible outcomes. And, and largely, where we could, we'd, we might align that to who the playing group were at the weekend um, or the competition that we faced. Um, so, yeah, just one example. I think exposing them to what are the, the realistic demands and, and stress test that where you can. Um, so, psychologically, there's all those aspects that come into the playing as well. Um, and then I think in terms of creating what might be, you know, I guess considered a, a robust player, 
it was to ensure that um, for us at the time the playing group that I was with that strength was king um, we weren't necessarily as recruited a, a big group at the time um, I think that changed in our second year we, we definitely did recruit some bigger heavier players but it was to make sure that we exposed our players to a good dosing of strength work concurrently throughout the year um, we would do conjugate sequencing so we'd we'd frame um, undulating music cycle blocks around competition periods we'd look to peak at least three times a season um, and you know, we, we try and prepare the group for what might be a congested period uh, of fixtures that we knew we needed to win for competition placing or what might be you know rivals and, and, and so forth and, and we would anchor development and then unloading phases around those periods um, but ensured that we never kind of stagnated in our strength work or you know there were long windows where we weren't chasing athletic development I think I think the idea of just doing maintenance work in season I think it's dead and I think that's been probably considered for a while but for us and, and the coaching group that I worked with at the time you know they were very comfortable with the knowledge as were the players that actually we, we, we want to try and finish the year as strong and athletic as possible um, rather than just being you know, happy with where they finished at the end of the season. Yeah, you basically answered my next question on the, on the periodizing training in season. Um, right, I knew you had <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, but going back to your your example for the stress test, I think that's that's great. You've you've got kind of three things. You've got the the competition. You've got the you know the standardization of of making sure it's based on some sort of rugby outcome and the accountability if they don't hit it. You know, there's extra work after that because essentially that's that's what happens in a game. If you don't if you don't hit those good standards in a game, you you kind of punished for it, aren't you? So I, I really like that, and it sounds like you had really good buy-in from the players. And <clears throat> I, I haven't visited the England uh, camp uh, since Eddie's been there, but everything you hear is that it's that that intensity based on on kind of their metrics from they see in games or uh, you know high level international play. And um, yeah, I think the main thing you said there for robust is you you've got to hit that intensity. Um, so that's great to hear. And in terms of periodization, yeah. it's, it's one of my pet hates. Is the you know, oh, we're in season now. It's just maintenance. You you, you can't do that. And like you said, it's there's no point being in great shape after pre-season. No one no one ever wins anything in September, do they? Apart from maybe the sevens. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, you want you want to be as as uh, powerful and as physical as you can come the end of the season. And and, and usually it's that team that is. You know, they're, they're the team that wins the wins the trophy at the end. So yeah, some great points there. Yeah. Um, the next question we've we've kind of touched on bits, you know, talking about the the strength and conditioning industry as a whole, um, and it, you know, it's totally up to you how you go this. But um, if you change one thing about the S and C industry, what would it be? Um, one thing. So, um, I think I think potentially. Um, one of the things, you know, so if we're talking about working conditions or working environment, um, I know that sometimes parallels have been drawn to S&C roles against medical roles and maybe how um, certain medical positions, even in academies, potentially um, are salary protected or, or, or maybe are matched with, with what people feel is a more fitting starting salary standard Um you know, obviously one of the things that those guys have done there is made their certification chartered, um, which I think helps. And obviously there's a medical legal requirement for clubs to employ medical staff, not necessarily S&C staff. Yeah. Um, but 
essentially, I know the UK say are moving toward a chartered um, certification anyway, which, which naturally I think will help and, and put a greater precedent on the importance of you know hiring a quality um, uh, S&C coach with a certification. Not that it's essential, but you know, I think it, it's a mark of practice um, and an ability. So I think you know that that will certainly help, and perhaps it'll help the field distinguish again from having a point of difference as someone who perhaps has prepared themselves to be more elite um, versus those who you know there's nothing wrong with it, and you know the aspects that I'm doing right now, working in private practice, is absolutely fine. Um, and then I think um, you know. You know, I've really, really enjoyed the journey, and I, and I certainly wouldn't change anything about the journey that I've had. And I think that, you know, looking at again the job market, people are now doing a better um, idea of keeping hold of, uh, or sorry, should I say, respecting internships. You know, creating paid internships, creating paid, well-structured opportunities for younger coaches to come in, flourish, and develop. That's absolutely what we should be doing. Um, so perhaps if there's anything. Unpaid internships is is definitely not okay in my book. Um, certainly, if you're going to ask someone to come and work for you know 30 hours plus a week, um, sadly, I think there uh, for different reasons there are a number of people perhaps who still do that, um, and no disrespect to them at all. You know, I career I'd been there, but but that was that was common consensus then. You you just did it. It was it was voluntary. I think I was part time, twenty twenty five hours a week. Uh, I think for me at the time, it, it was a necessary evil to to learn, make mistakes, and then get a foot in the door later. And there's still a lot of value in doing that. And I'm not saying that you should turn down opportunities just because they're free. There are some great opportunities, providing that perhaps maybe if that isn't met with monetary returns, you're given you know in house CPD, you're given. Um, structured to develop, let's say, your certification uh, or your preparation for, let's say, UKCA or whatever certification that you're doing at the time. Um, so something is at least valued as a return for, for the time given up by someone else. Um, and then I, and lastly, just um, I think it's probably more of a media thing than, than, than personalities or individuals, but um, you know, I, I think I was quite into checking out Twitter every day <laughs> a few years back and now I'm probably looking at less and less just because I don't think we sometimes do uh, ourselves that many favours have been um, a bit brash with with some of our behaviour and so how we share some of our views and look everyone to themselves um, I'm just not someone who wants to get into a lot of conflict for no real reason um, respect that there are some challenging things abreast at the moment in industry and people are certainly trying to move toward addressing those you know be it employee standards be it um uh, how the UKCA perhaps are trying to educate employers who want to engage with the UKCA um but um I think perhaps sometimes it doesn't hurt to keep dirty laundry out of public and, and maybe you know save your professional image a little bit um but that's just my my opinion cool um so, again, you've, you've kind of covered this a little bit uh, in some of the previous questions, but what advice would you give to uh, upcoming strength coaches? Yeah, so, well, if I was to add anything else to, to what I said before, um, so if, if, if you're going to try and distinguish or differentiate who you are, what you do, and how it 
might be better than, than someone you're interviewing against for an S&C role, I would say that you you probably need to do a number of, of key things about the whole job application. And, and for me, I always kind of looked at that as a, a job in itself. I don't know about you. You know, I've been through making errors of, of dishing out multiple CVs with, with DSR, uh, Madam, um, and it was a carbon copy cover cover letter for every single role that I went for. Unsurprising, wasn't so successful with those. Um, and you know, that's been said by other people too, but you, I think in this day and age, because the competition is so large, you do have to I think, put a bit of time and effort into thinking about who you're writing to. Have you taken the time to do some research about the role, um, the environment, the club that you're looking to work for? Um, you know, it doesn't hurt to try and, and certainly contact these people prior to the, the interview, I'm, I'm still astonished by the amount of people who just put in a cold application and hope that it's enough. I, I don't think it is enough. I mentioned before that people will hire and want to work with those who they know, like, and trust. You know, I, I certainly have hired people based on a relationship to an extent that I had with that person because I knew they were of worth, I knew they were of value. So, you know, in order to get yourself in the door, be on that shortlist so you can get in front of somebody. And many people can show their value. I think when they get in front of someone else, but you know, what are you prepared to do, and can you do it professionally? That will help you jump onto that shortlist and do so quite convincingly, um, and and that's the key. And I think you know everything else being equal, when you get to interview, you get to practical assessment. You know wh- whatever the hiring process is, generally people at that point will show their worth and experience, quality, nerves come through, but taking the time to really do your homework and research on the environment um, and you know certainly the lead of the environment or the head of the environment takes some time to look at their background if they've done research where they've been so you know some way if, if you can you look to align some of your thoughts or your reading or your experience with things that they might be interested in you know if you're going to go for a rugby role you need to yes have a really strong handle on the strength and power Research the conditioning literature. Um, you know, look at the, the key demands of rugby, but then look at some of the innovation that might be happening around the environment. Look at look at the environment you're going to work for. What technology do they have? If you can find out prior to, make sure that you've at least done some reading, or you can demonstrate and show some cases that you have with, you know, some of the more progressive sports science technologies that are used right now. I mean, force plate software is massive and it's growing at a a real speed isn't it or you know velocity based training assessments and training you know we we need to be abreast with this information um, and not that it's it can be the defining factor in someone getting hired but again when the market is is perhaps as saturated as it is with with folks with like for like experience education uh, and accreditation what you know and how you articulate what you know in a manner that it's a need or solves a problem for an organisation is what it's going to come down to um, and then I think I'll put it off the back of that I think yeah people people buy or should I say people hire those who can offer an insight or solve problems that, that, that an organisation or, or a group have yeah. right so generally speaking I'm, I'm sure you've done I know I have when you go into advert you've got an idea of what, what you want to see already um, and generally speaking a hint of that will be on the job application. What they're really looking for is a personal quality. What they really want is a skill set. So do your, do your diligence on that. You know, I, I used to 
study that job application hard and make sure that I nailed the core points that jumped out at me from that job advert on the cover letter. And I built my CV to fit that. Probably chopped off some things from my CV and then blended it to fit, you know, what what a pro environment might want to see. I wouldn't put sometimes voluntary roles in there. I wouldn't put <laughs> what my grades were at school or college because it, it isn't relevant. Yeah. It needs to be punchy, effective, um, and, and like I say, aligned to 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 the advert, to the to the job, to the organisation. So, yeah, I think in short, as much research as possible really put some some conscious thought into the whole approach the job advert the application the interviewing um and then just try and be as personable as possible and make sure that that you do a really good job in the communication and the relationships department because i think for me that that's always the strongest quality i look for in someone yeah i think definitely research is you know great great piece of advice um and i I think also you do your research about the you know the club or team you're you're interviewing with that'll kind of give you questions to ask. I always think when I'm interviewing someone if they come back at me with some decent questions that always paints them in a, in a better light um and also Definitely. anyone I've been advising you know going to interview I've always said you know it's it's an interview for you as well to kind of see if you like the environment and you you know you get a good vibe from it um but also if worst case you know, you're unsuccessful in getting the role. Worst case, you've still got an opportunity to, you know, in a assuming a good environment where you can you can pick their brains and, and learn a little bit from them. So next time you go to an interview, you're in a better stand. And 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 also, it's it's building that network. If if you come across well in that interview, they might know someone else that you're interviewing later on. You never know. It's just you know putting your best foot forward and showing that you've. Because I, th- I think anyone who who's interviewed someone and, and realised they've put a lot of research into it, they're, they're always impressed. So yeah, so great yeah. Bit of advice there. Um, no, that's great advice. That's good. And then uh, any any books or anything? It doesn't have to be SNC related. Might be you know a lot. Of, we've had some quite out of the box ones. Any books that you'd recommend to strength coaches? Yeah. So the ones that possibly jump out at me, and I've just gone over uh, the book by Daniel Priestley, Key Person Influence again. Oh, quite yeah, topical that, yeah. at the moment in self-employment right and that's a, that's a phenomenal um, resource um, alongside that legacy I'm sure many many people have mentioned that on your podcast but um, that definitely sort of lit my uh, my taste buds with, with ambition and, and, and what I thought of what, what a high performing or, or high high valued environment should look like um, and probably a left field one um, but uh, crucial conversations. I forget the author, but um, you know, if you if you spend enough time in pro sport or in any environment, it, it, it can be at home sometimes that there is conflicts and conscious conflict, and and being able to to understand uh, your mindset and your behaviours in conflict, and then you know navigate that to, to get a good outcome from from conflict with a player or with the staff or a group of people that you perhaps work with. It definitely puts you in good stead because you're always going to get challenged, um, and it, sometimes it's personal, sometimes can be, or, or the way you perceive it. But I think if you've got, at least you know how to 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 weather conflict, then that sometimes are the are the more critical, more important moments of your role that can kind of define a direction with a playing group or your relationship with someone that, that is a real influencer where you work. So um, it's not. I, I, I like that sort of stuff. Um, 
yeah, I said they're sort of three core cool ones as well. Score takes care of itself. Another belter of a book. Um, so yeah, yeah, they're they're the few. Oh, cool. Yeah, I would definitely check those out. And and lastly, just just to wrap up, John, where can people learn more about you? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm on media as um, uh, within Instagram and Twitter as John underscore M underscore Noonan. Um, I've got a website as well, noonanperformance.com. dot com. Um, yeah, they're the they're the probably core places. Yeah. Cool, and we will of course share uh, links to those in the show notes. But um, lastly, yeah, um, really, really good chatting with you. Um, thanks so much for for sharing all that. Some some great advice there, and uh, tons of good information. Um, so yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Um, thanks, and all the best for the future. Great. Yeah, listen, thanks for thanks for your time. Great to chat. Thank you, Jeremy. Cheers, John. Yes, thank you, John, for coming on and taking the time to talk to us. Tons of great information there. Um, hopefully you found that helpful uh, if you did please share it uh, with anyone who you think it will help and of course check us out at rugbyrenegade.com uh, tons more uh, podcasts coming so please subscribe to us on SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, iTunes Spotify, whatever you use for your podcasts and of course give us a 5 star review because uh, there's more coming uh, so stay tuned Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade Podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at RugbyRenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.